Welcome to the podcast, Don't Forget Me, about the life and times of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Chapter 8. All right, now we're talking about why, why, why. Now you appeared, that, that song got you on, I think, Alan Freed's uh, Channel 5 show, The Big Beat, right? Yeah, I was on The Big Beat with uh, me, and actually Connie Francis was on the same show with me. All right, that's yeah. not uh, not too shabby at all to be with Connie. <laughs> yeah, it was, and you know, it's, it's funny because uh, Alan Freed said to me, uh, you know, while, while there was a break in some of the, some of the uh, after, during the commercial break, he said, why don't you go and, and, and dance with Connie? Uh, you know, when the next song comes on. So I'm, I'm dancing with Connie Francis. I'm saying to myself, my hands are sweaty. I don't know. I, my tongue is tied. I'm dancing with Connie Francis. And it's a, it's a, it's quite frankly, it's a holy <laughs> moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> As a 16 year old, 17 year old kid dancing with Connie Francis. Uh, and she said to me, why don't you, why don't you, uh, talk to my, my manager, George Schechter, because he's always looking for talent. And uh, I had just hooked up with another manager. Maybe if I would have hooked up with Schechter, you know, my my life would have been a little differently. But, you know, you make the choices and uh, you go where it goes. <laughs> Absolutely. And this, uh, this kind of business, uh, people who are not in it, there are a lot of twists and turns in, uh, in, in this show business stuff, recording and records, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean... The volume, the sheer volume of songs that used to be that used to come out every week from the recording sessions in New York and and, and in California, primarily New York. And you you know when you when you look at the songs in in, in um, Billboard magazine, the releases it had to be at least a hundred songs every week. New recordings that were coming out every week, every single week. So the odds of you getting even into the top one hundred were so. Very slim, very slim. You could have won the lottery, you had a better chance. Right, I understand what you're saying. There was just such a uh, mountain of records released at the time that you could get lost in the shuffle, as they say. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we have a copy of YYY with uh, an interview, I guess, with you as the lead voice, uh, Scott Stevens, on the Alan Freed TV show. Can we give a listen to that right now? Oh, absolutely. All right, let's hear it.
you. Good to have you with us. Gee, I like Thank the you. record. Thank you. Yes, what does this stand for here? Oh, it's usually guitar, uh, car emblem. Do you have a car? No. It's all right, you got the emblem, so what do you want with the car? Where are you from, Scott? I'm from the Bronx, New York. Well, wonderful. I think we Brooklyn people can do a little better by the Bronx than that. Come on. I originally come from Brooklyn. He comes originally from Brooklyn. Yay! How old are you, Scott? I'm 17. You're in school? school? Senior in high school. Where do you go to school? Taft High School in the Bronx. Taft High. Right. And who wrote this song? I wrote this song. Wonderful. Thank what you. label? APT. That's a subsidiary of uh, ABC Paramount. Paramount Records. Right. I hope it's going to be a big one. I think it is. Thank you very much. Scott, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Let's have it. Well, see how many guys and gals come from the New York area now with record hits. Our pick of the week by uh, the way you know is another New York group, the Mystics, Hushabye, and um, had so many. The Impalas, by the way, from the greater New York area, have the number two record in America starting on Monday. So it just goes to show that we New Yorkers are really setting the pace in rock and roll these days. They have YYY is done by uh, my guest, Scott Stevens, along with his group, the Cavaliers. And uh, the uh, interview there with uh, Freed, great to hear his voice again. And uh, what was yeah, it like being on his show? You know, with the kids and everything and... Uh, it, it was very neat. It's very, very, uh, very good host and uh, very friendly, outgoing. Um, you know, and uh, it, it was interesting. It, it was really interesting, and that was one of the first times that I appeared that I appeared as a solo performer because my my record label and my manager were grooming me to to go out as a single. And um, now, when that, that happened, I'm just curious how how did the other guys in the group take that? knowing that they were trying to groom you as a solo? Yeah, not very well. Not very well. Uh, especially the African-American kids in the group. Um, because, you know, in the 50s, uh, you know, especially the kids that came out of home, um, there, were only, there were only a couple of ways that they could get out of the ghetto. Um, and one of them was the numbers racket, so there was gambling, and the numbers are, you know, the, the older, the 50s version of, of lottery, where you... One numbers you pick some numbers and maybe you won a couple of dollars. If you put down a quarter, you you got you got some payback back. Mm-hmm. And you had kids that that did the numbers, and, you know, and they couldn't get kids. You know, sports wasn't an avenue to um, get out of the ghetto uh, because they were they were all street games: football, uh, basketball, baseball. Uh, that that was unlike unlikely, um, and or it was music. And when I decided to go out as a single, uh, you know, they, they they lost in in a lot of ways. They lost their ticket out of the ghetto. Was that your uh, decision? Was that your decision to want to be a single and to go out solo, or was yeah. it the manager and the record label saying, "Hey, you know, uh, maybe you should uh, do this sort of thing"? Did they push you in that direction, or did you yeah, want to go that way? With a little bit of both. You uh-huh. know, I, I think in a way, I wanted to follow what what Dion was doing. Um, and and a lot of the other artists at the time, but you know the, the one thing that I didn't realize is I had I had stage fright when I was when I was singing, and I was more comfortable when I was on stage with the group backing me up 
that was that was sort of my my uh, my comfort jacket. Um, you know, my uh, to sure uh, to exactly. When you're when you're out there with uh, other people, uh, the eyes aren't o- always on you alone. You exactly. Know? And uh, when you're out there alone, you realize how alone you really are out there without the other guys. You better believe it. And as a matter of fact, I used to get so nauseous and so uh, upset about it and uptight about it that I usually got nauseous and sometimes threw up before I got on stage. So I had. <coughs> you're not the first guy who told me that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I won't be the last. <laughs> So these guys have been on, they've won the Amateur Hour, they've started to record demos, and now they're searching for a record label. And we have to do a little bit of a history lesson here to understand like what happens when they go and, and find the record label. So this, this, this episode ends up being more about racism in the music industry and the music industry itself at the time. We just have to look at it from the perspective of, okay, what, what is it? that the outcome is so bad. Well, here are, here are two pieces of information that you'll need in order to understand what's happening next. One of the buildings that comes into play that is an important part of this story is the Brill Building. The Brill Building was built in 1931 as the Allen E. LaCourt Building and designed by Victor Bark Jr. It's an office building located at 1619 Broadway on 49th Street in the New York City borough of Manhattan. It's just north of Times Square and further uptown from the historic musical Tin Pan Alley neighborhood. It's famous for housing music industry offices and studios where some of the most popular American music tunes were written. The building is 11 stories and approximately 175,000 rentable square feet. The Brill Building was named after the Brill Brothers, who owned a clothing store on the street level and who later bought the entire building from the developer, A.E. Leftcourt. It was intended as a financial office space for brokers and bankers, but in the midst of the Depression, the timing couldn't have been worse and the owners resorted to renting space to music publishers, as there were few other takers. For this reason, the Brill Building became a centerpiece for the music industry in New York and the country, with many publishers and writers using the space for their offices and storefronts. By the 1960s, there were over 120 independent music businesses in the building. The bust above the main entrance, and another located at the top of the building, is of the son of Abraham E. Lefcourt, namely Alan E. Lefcourt, who prematurely died of anemia on February 3rd, 1930, at the age of 17. Abraham Lefcourt originally intended the building on this site to be his answer to the Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building. The premature death of his son, along with the financial impact of the stock market crash on his fortune, forced him to erect the more modest building we see today. Despite the vast change in the area surrounding the building, the Brill Building remains somewhat untouched and is still home to some of the most important music offices and stores in Manhattan. In the modern world of today, KMA Music is a very well-known and heavily used recording studio located inside. It's used there by major record labels. In addition, there are still numerous music publishers in the building, and artists and songwriters such as Paul Simon all have offices inside of the building, as does Lorne Michaels Broadway Video Production Company. The building was designated an official city landmark in 2010. Even before World War II, it became a center of activity for the popular music industry, especially music publishing and songwriting. Scores of music publishers had offices in the Brill Building, once songs had 
been published, the publishers sent song pluggers to the popular white bands and radio stations. These song pluggers would sing or play the song for the band leaders to encourage bands to play their music. During the ASCAP strike of 1941, many of the composers, authors, and publishers turned to pseudonyms in order to have their songs played on the air. Brill building songs were constantly at the top of the hit parade and played by the leading bands of the day, including Billy Rose, the Benny Goodman Orchestra, the Glenn Miller Orchestra, the Jimmy Dorsey Orchestra, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, and publishers including Leo Feist Inc., Lewis Music Publishing, Mills Music Publishing, and composers like Buddy Fine, Johnny Mercer, Rosemary McCoy, Irving Mills, and Peter Tinturin. The music publishers at the time followed the racial codes of the day. They either had their own typically white contract writers composing songs, or they opened their doors to publish songs of others. But sometimes they hid the fact that songs were created by non-white or non-Christian artists. Black songwriters such as James Bland, Scott Joplin, and U.B. Blake never felt the need to resort to this kind of subterfuge, and they were internationally renowned for their compositions. Some Jewish songwriters did adopt anglicized noms de plume, but most did not. While anti-Semitism was widespread in America, it was not characteristic of the music industry, in which Jewish composers such as Kern, Gershwin, Rogers, and many others flourished without significant discrimination. In the 1930s, some publishers in the Brill Building specialized in publishing the songs of African-American swing composers. For example, Lewis Music published the songs of Erskine Hawkins and Avery Parrish, among others. These tunes were referred to as race music, the euphemism for songs written by black artists. If a composer wrote an instrumental, and even sometimes if there were already lyrics, the publishers provided their own lyricists. Top-selling songs on the hit parade, such as Tuxedo Junction and Jersey Bounce, were originally composed as instrumentals by black swing artists, but were not played by white bands on the radio until they had been published with lyrics, most often by white writers. The Brill Building's name had been widely adopted as a short term for a broad and influential stream of American mainstream popular music, strongly influenced by Latin music and rhythm and blues, which enjoyed great commercial success. Many significant American and international publishing companies, music agencies, and record labels were based in New York, and although these ventures were naturally spread amongst many locations, the Brill Building was regarded as probably the most prestigious address in New York for music business professionals. The term, the Brill Building sound, is somewhat inaccurate. However, since much of the music so categorized actually emanated from other locations, music historian Ken Emerson nominates buildings at 1650 Broadway and 1697 Broadway as other significant bases of activity in this field. By 1962, the Brill Building contained 165 music businesses. A musician could find a publisher and a printer, cut a demo, promote the record, and cut a deal with radio promoters, all within this one building. The creative culture of the independent music companies of the Brill Building and the nearby 1650 Broadway aimed to define the influential Brill Building sound and the story of popular music songwriting and recording created by its writers and producers. Carol King described the atmosphere at the Brill Building publishing houses of the period. Every day, we squeeze into our respective cubby holes with just enough room for a piano, a bench, and maybe a chair for the lyricist, if you were lucky. You'd sit there and write, and you could hear someone in the next cubby hole composing a song, 
exactly like yours. The pressure in the Brill Building was really terrific because Donnie Kirshner would play one songwriter against another. He'd say, we need a new smash hit, and we'd all go back and write a song, and the next day we'd each audition for Bobby V's producer. Many of the Brill Building's best works in this diverse category were written by a loosely affiliated group of songwriter-producer teams, mostly duos, that enjoyed immense success and who collectively wrote some of the biggest songs of the period. Many in this group were close friends, as well as being creative and business associates. And both individually and as duos, they often worked with each other and with other writers in a wide variety of combinations. Some, like Carol King, Burt Bacharach, Neil Sedaka, Boyce and Hart, recorded and had hits with their own music, including Neil Diamond, Burt Burns, Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, Jerry Goffin and Carol King, Burt Bacharach and Hal David, Hugo and Luigi, Artie Cornfield, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Weil, Shadow Morton, Laura Nero, Klaus Ogerman, Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann, Tony Powers, Neil Sedaka and Howard Greenfield, and Paul Simon as Jerry Landis, as well as... Phil Spector. Other famous musicians who were headquartered in the real building included Bobby Darren, Ben E. King, Connie Francis, Tony Orlando, and Gene Pitney. Among the hundreds of hits written by this group are Yakety Yak, Save the Last Dance for Me, The Look of Love, Calendar Girl, The Locomotion, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, River Deep, Mountain High, and Stand By Me. Just some of the studio musicians who contributed to this sound include arrangers and conductors Alan Lorber, Ticho Wiltshire, Artie Butler, and Gary Sherman. On bass, you could find Wendell Marshall, Russ Savakas, Russ Saunders, Joy Macho Jr., Chuck Rainey, George DeVivier, Milt Hinton. On drums, you could find Gary Chester, Buddy Saltzman, and Sticks Evans. On guitar, there was Al Gorgioni, Carl Lynch, Bill Sucker, Charles Macy, Everett Barksdale, Bucky Pizzarelli, Art Ryerson, Al Caiola, Trey Martin, Don Arnani, Tony Motola, Bob Bushnell, Al Casamenti, Billy Butler, George Barnes, Alan Hanlon, Vinnie Bell, and Eddie Ems. On percussion, you could find George Devins, Phil Kraus, Nick Rodriguez, and Martin Grupp. On piano, Ernie Hay Paul Griffin, and Hank Jones. On saxophone, Artie Kaplan, Frank Haywood Henry, Phil Bodner, and Romeo Penke. On trumpet, Marky Markowitz, Ernie Royal, Jimmy Nottingham, and Jimmy Sadler. On trombone, Irby Green, Frank Sirocco, and Jimmy Cleveland. Many of the writers came to prominence while under contract to Alden Music, a publishing company founded in 1958 by aspiring music entrepreneur Don Kirshner and industry veteran Al Nevins. Alden Music was not initially located in the Brill Building, but rather a block away at 1650 Broadway at 51st Street. 1650 Broadway was built to be a musician's headquarters, so much so that the laws at the time required that the front door be placed on the side of the building due to laws or restricting musicians from entering buildings from the front. Most so-called Brill Building writers began their careers at 1650 Broadway, and the building continued to house many record labels through the decades. Tony Wine explains, There are really two huge buildings that were housing publishing companies, songwriters, record labels, and artists. The Brill Building was one of them. But truthfully, most of your R&B, really rock and roll labels and publishing companies, including the studio, which was in the basement, was called Allegro Studios, were in 1650 Broadway. They were probably a block and a half away from each other. 1650 and the Brill Building. The list of people affiliated with the Brill Building, and it goes on and on. It, like, I know that like the, the question could come up, like, how does that play into all of this? And the way that it plays into all of this is simple. If everything was happening in the same two locations, or 
the bulk of activity for the York was happening in the same two locations, then everybody knew, like everybody had established rules that they were following. And that's particularly true in this instance. And that's what makes it so complicated. So on the one hand, you've got Steve, and Steve is inherently a risk taker. That's sort of what we've been building to. He doesn't understand what he's gotten himself into when he finally like gets a taste of music. He really just is there to produce music. And you hear these ideas that like, oh, he wanted to go solo. But then you can clearly see that the group was there for a specific purpose. In the 1950s into the 1960s, everybody knew what was going on in these two buildings. That somehow Steve and the Cavaliers managed to wedge themselves in there just for a minute among all of these people. It was a huge deal. Let's take a look at what racism is looked at today. This is, this is from 2020, looking back. And then on the next episode, we'll get into what happened to the Cavaliers and how it affects all of this. From the Rolling Stone, on June 5th, 2020, the music industry was built on racism. Changing it will take more than donations. In September of 1978, soul producer extraordinaire Kenneth Gamble helped launch the Black Music Association, an advocacy group set on pushing the music industry to recognize and celebrate the economic and cultural power of black music, as well as those who made it and promoted it. It was time for something new and more inclusive of all black music industry professionals, Gamble said in 2015. The BMA was addressed to both artists and executives, linking two groups that both faced music industry racism, but were often on opposite sides of negotiating tables. The BMA's slogan, Black Music is Green. The BMA eventually faded from prominence, unable to withstand splintered agendas and the leadership. But several executives referenced the organization's history of advocacy this week in the aftermath of Blackout Tuesday, which saw work stoppages across the major labels. I feel like we need that to come back, says one manager who participated in Blackout Tuesday events. Amid nationwide protest over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, record labels decided to use Tuesday for a rare industry-wide reckoning. Two related conversations have unfolded in parallel. First, can the music industry use its vast resources and wide influence to help reduce police brutality and combat systemic racism? Second, can the music industry finally face down its own history of racism and build a more equitable future? Some saw the industry's navel-gazing as a distraction from the fierce urgency of the protests around George Floyd's death. If I don't want to be exploited by the music business, I know how not to be exploited by the music business. I don't sign a contract, says another manager who participated in Blackout Tuesday events. I still don't know how not to be killed by a police officer. But this week's conversation about the ways the record industry does a very good job of keeping black people out of the room, as one a &R puts it, is accelerating discussions that have been in progress for decades and were already becoming more public in recent years. These concern the wildly uneven contracts that continue to earn the music business millions of dollars while passing on only a small amount of that wealth to artists. The myriad techniques a music industry run predominantly by rich white executives uses to profit off black art, bringing transparency to a label system that thrives on opacity and the capacity for collective action in a ruthless, at sometimes vindictive music business. 
Almost everyone who spoke for this story did so anonymously so as to avoid being penalized. That promotes relentless inter- and intra-label competition over any kind of solidarity. We're not looking for these corporations to change everything in a day, says the first manager. We're looking for them to say, we're wrong. We don't make money without the black community. Here's a fund we set aside to utilize as you see fit. But to grapple with these questions is also to challenge the very core of the major label music business, which is built through relentless and frequently racist and sexist exploitation. Labels are just in the business of making money, says the rapper Royce the Five Nine, who has worked with the majors but now operates independently. A second A&R goes further. None of the major labels would be standing if the business were fair. A typical record deal, for example, involves an artist giving up the rights to his or her music, often in perpetuity, in exchange for an upfront check, and eventually, maybe, the right to pocket 18 cents out of every dollar made from those recordings. After the label recovers the advance, the marketing budget, tour support, and other expenses. The music business has one of the most predatory loans in the history of loans, says the second manager. Even with a bank, your interest rate may be high, but if you pay your loan off, you at least own your house. In the music industry, you give someone something for eternity, and you never get it back. The contemporary popular music industry also has racism baked into its foundation. The term R&B was coined, after all, to replace race music. The charts have always been mostly segregated, with white musicians responsible for the majority of rock, country, and pop, and black musicians making their way up R&B and hip-hop charts. Black acts are still penalized for trying to move into white spaces. Just last year, Little Nas X was booted off Billboard's country chart, while white performers who dabble in hip-hop, Post Malone and G-Eazy, and R&B, Adele, benefit from a significant commercial windfall. The makeup of the music industry largely mirrors the makeup of those charts today. Black executives remain concentrated in what are called urban departments, which focus on hip-hop and R&B, while white executives are free to move as they please. This is true even as hip-hop and R&B have come to dominate listening in the streaming era. Pop music is black music. That's just what it is, says the first A&R, who works predominantly with rappers and R&B singers. We need the offices to reflect the charts. It's real simple. Achieving that simple goal will be a challenge for a music industry with little recent history of effective collective action. The original BMA managed to cut across the industry's various factions, making room for artists, executives, distributors, and broadcasters. But factionalism eventually contributed to the organization's dissolution. In the music business, the people who know things don't pass that on. Everyone is in competition with each other. Royce to 5-9 says, while there are music unions built for collective action, none are geared towards addressing inherent racial inequities in the business, and most record label executives cannot join unions because they are managers. The people with the most power to influence change at the labels are likely the artists themselves, so their involvement in any effort is crucial. In the past, acts with leverage have not always been willing to use it to dismantle a system that's still offering them a check. When a black artist who's in high demand walks into a record label and he sees the entire conference room is white, why doesn't he say something then? The A&R asks. Say, this is weird. I don't make music for people who look like y'all. They're never going to do that. You sign a check, you take a picture with whoever, and you keep it moving. But one black artist signed to a major label says artists face the exact same racist constraints as the executives. Anyone who works in the industry as an executive or A&R and is black knows how fucked up it is, but doesn't want to jeopardize their job or their reputation to fight super hard for a black artist because they know that their job is on the line as well. 
he explains. They can only do so much because the major labels are still run by the same white people. To shift the balance of power in the corner offices, executives and managers already have several proposals in mind. They need to have more initiatives to hire black people across the board, says Coyote Badmus Wellington, founder and CEO of Dirty Mind, an artist development collective, and a former executive at Epic Records and Pulse Music Group. Just as important, there must be some type of career development system for anyone who comes into the organization, says Craig Bayless, a major label veteran at Sony Music and Warner Music Group. He's a talent manager and a brand strategist. Without a career track, how are they going to identify and undo systemic racism and exalt black folks? At a company like Toyota, when you work for a certain amount of time, you know you're going to get certain raises and move up to certain positions, Bayless continues. At a record company, you can come in as an assistant, amass 10,000 followers on Instagram, throw a party, invite someone in the right position at the company, and you end up as a VP. The first A&R also calls for more transparency around pay rates. Unless everyone is aware who makes what, it's hard to make the payment of black executives in line with the rest of their white peers, he says. Maybe most important of all, a system needs to be put in place to ensure that the labels take action to decrease racial inequality. Labels rarely, if ever, police themselves, often taking action to oust executives accused of sexual assault or reduce payola practices only when they are forced to do so by outside entities. With that in mind, Bayless proposes the creation of an independent body in charge of monitoring labels' efforts to become more diverse. That governing body should not be in the pockets of the record labels and not be in the business of promoting artists, he says. If implemented correctly, all these steps would at least help to increase the number of black executives in positions of power. But is that really enough? It doesn't necessarily change the underlying business model of the major label music industry, which remains focused on offering those predatory loans to young artists and then sorting them into racially defined genres. It would be beautiful to get our masters, the major label artist says. That's the reparation we need as black artists. The music that we make, we own it, or we get shares of the label when we sign. It shouldn't be crazy for us to want to own our own masters. Royce to 59 calls this week just a start. We can't just launch initiatives in the wake of chaos and then stop, he continues. We have to be able to keep it going. There's some irony in using Royce to 59 in that particular article. He's closely affiliated with Eminem, who stands at openly admitting that there's a sense of appropriation about his own music. There's two levels to this. The first level is access to the industry. It's already hard enough for the film industry, the movie industry, the television industry to get in and to get seen is so hard. The second part of that is you've got, they call it predatory, but it's unbalanced financial setups from the very beginning. And they, they get these people early, hoping that they pay for their development in whatever it is, whether it's music and singing or or rap or uh, movie making, they want to get them locked down into contracts and first look deals and development deals, and they do they do invest in them. They put money into them, but not the same amount that that is received back. And frequently, it's unbalanced for the artist, and that happens to the Cavaliers as it is. The idea was these impediments placed on people based on race, gender whatever discrimination is coming up, that's this heavy, heavy burden of a third level where it's almost insurmountable. And it doesn't just apply to the people who are suffering the discrimination directly, the the gender, racial, whatever bias is at play there that, that has either a spoken rule, a written rule, or an unwritten, unspoken rule. 
It's all the people around them, all the people affiliated with them go down with them. And that has cost this industry and other industries to have like almost like a seesaw effect because I'm critical of approaching it in this way, although I do agree like this is a good start. When you when you're looking at these industries and you let them go on and on forever and then you flip them to try and balance them the other way, it doesn't work. They're trying to find balance here in a way that will treat everyone fairly. That I agree with, even though I'm critical of some of the rest of what they're doing. I do agree with with trying to balance everything out. And that search for balance is what makes the story of the Cavaliers so important and other groups like them. There are very few like them, but they were right in the middle of the time when the record industry was developing its bad habits and it affected people equally. That's terrible to say, but they sort of become this petri dish that their story being examined can show you origins from the major problems. And then you could see where the bias was piled on top of it. Thanks for joining us. This is Don't Forget Me, a podcast about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Music and words are adapted with the permission of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. We hope you'll continue with us on the rest of this limited series and musical adventure. Check the show notes to find out more about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers.